The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. January 27th. That's the day after Australia Day, so happy post-Australia Day. In Australia, it's already January 28th, which is post-post-Australia Day, but because of short-notice rush obligations, we didn't get to do our Australia Day show. So to our many listeners down under, a very belated Happy Australia Day. Or if you work at the ABC, Happy Invasion Day, as they call the national holiday. I trust you at the usual orgy of psychologically unhealthy civilizational self-loathing. The Australian Cricket Board issued all mention of Australia Day. So sad to see real sports going the way of the woke wankers at American football. And even the official pro-Australia Day government commercials are suffused in hand-wringing ambivalence and mainly feature the usual cast of multi-culti bit players explaining that Australia Day is a useful day to talk to each other about how ashamed of ourselves we all are. Well, not me personally, but you awful people over there. The story of Australia is the story of me. It's the story of you. In parts, it is painful. In parts, it is raw. In others, it's beautiful. And those who've been here... Since the beginning of time. It brings us together. And tears us apart. We all have our views. So where do we start? By listening to each other. And sharing our part. We're all part of the story. Australia Day. Yeah, toss another shrimp on the guilt trip. That'll work. There's no future in this, none. I see that this Australia Day, Malcolm Turnbull, the ousted Prime Minister and the country's most famous Republican, has been made a companion of the Queen's Most Excellent Order of Australia. You get a medal with a big crown on the top. He says rather sheepishly that it's just the traditional honour for retiring Prime Ministers. That's bollocks. It's a tradition that goes back less than half a century or two-thirds of the present Queen's reign, so he could easily turn it down. In fact, he could say that he doesn't believe it's appropriate for him to be honoured on Australia Day, a day that causes so much pain and anguish to so many people. Uh, But Mr Turnbull isn't really a serious person. He's a modish poser striking attitudes, uh, as so many uh, with his background are, alas. By contrast, the people who are killing Australia Day year on year are deadly serious and they will ultimately prevail because they mean it. And in the end, the blokes who don't want to go all the way, the Turnbulls and the like, are going to have to get more serious than those weedy, oh, it's a good time for a national conversation uh, ads. As I said on Rush yesterday, what Chairman Xi and Beijing do is rather more important now than what President-alleged Biden and Washington do. Even so, here's some uh, breaking news. There's no end to the inventiveness of the Chicoms. They've just introduced a new COVID test that is far more accurate than the nose and throat swabs. Uh, it's an anal swab. 
Oh, don't worry, Doc Fauci will be mandating it for Americans any day now. You'll need it in California and New York if you want to leave the house. It's very simple. They just stick it up you and rotate it a few times, which is basically what Chairman Xi's been doing to the planet for the last year, so he's probably pretty good at it by now. I think I need a musical interlude after that. A famous old folk song called Aura Lee. Aura Lee. Beautiful. Aura Lee. Pretty song. Every time you take vaccine, take it orally. <laughs> As you know, the other way is more painfully. Vic Damone singing the great Alan Sherman. The algorithms that at Western Liberty continue their dark work. Facebook has apologised for banning all mention of the English beauty spot called Devil's Dyke. It's in Sussex and is a popular tourist attraction, if tourists are still a thing. But Commissar Zuckerberg forbade all mention of Devil's Dyke on Facebook as hate speech that breaches Facebook's, quote, community standards, presumably because it's uh, offensive to satanic uh, lesbians. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Uh, The community standards on Facebook are increasingly that you have to be a moron. I would rather be ruled by a discarded Chicom anal swab than by algorithms devised by Zuckerberg. And now, from the land where everything is policed except crime... Good evening, all. It's your Brit Wanker Copper of the Day. You remember parties? Birthday parties, baby showers, anniversaries, Boxing Day sherry parties with the squire and the vicar? Uh, Well, they've been banned for almost a year now, but the memory lingers. Steve Varsano is a very successful and very wealthy man. He's an American in London, and he made it big in the private jet business, which is a rather glamorous line to be in. How are you yourself, Steve? How are you keeping yourself motivated, engaged? What's keeping you going through this time when we are all socially isolated? (laughs) What's keeping me going? Trying to find ways to pay the bills. I would have thought he'd be doing okay, if only because so much of the commercial airline route map has vanished. Most of the airline's secondary destinations are gone. Air Canada, Montreal to Geneva, for example, which is a route I flew fairly regularly. Uh, They haven't flown in nine months, and I doubt that one is ever coming back. Imagine a road map of your state or province with all the secondary county roads gone and just the big freeways, order routes, motorways left. That's what commercial air travel has shrunk to. So I figured, as the only alternative out there, Steve Varsano and his private guys would be doing fine, but apparently not so. In Europe means different than opening up in America. In Europe, we have every single fight, you know, 90% of the fights are international. So there's a lot of cross borders that are closed. So people can't fly around like you can in America. In America, you can go and get on your private plane, fly around the US freely, it was not a big deal. But in Europe, you can't go anywhere. So unless you have a home or a passport in those countries, they're not allow, allowing you to go into that country. So it's caused the problem in our industry to go and show airplanes, look at logbooks, go to uh, maintenance facilities, 
things like that. Oh my, tough times. Still and all, for his girlfriend's birthday, Mr. Varsano wanted to do something special. Lisa Chenguiz is described as a socialite, so presumably she's used to fairly lavish parties. No chance of that, but Steve decided to invite her round to his offices in Park Lane, Mayfair, and surprise her with a party attended by 70 life-size cardboard cutouts of her best friends arranged around the room in an informal, non-socially distant manner like the parties we used to have before the state commissars banned them. These weren't just the usual third-rate cardboard cutouts like the one of the English pop star Shaken Stevens. His record company sent me many years ago. And they were extremely convincing. So convincing, in fact, that a passenger on the top deck of a double-decker bus going down Park Lane looked into the second-floor window, saw 70 people having a big swanky party, and was so disgusted he called the peelers. The Metropolitan Police dispatched between 10 and a dozen officers in multiple vehicles to Mr Versano's premises. Ten London coppers versus 70 cardboard cutouts. That seems like a fair fight. In America, it would have been a SWAT team in the full Robocop and the party guests would be as riddled as the targets at your local shooting range. But the Met refused to believe the host's explanation and thinking the cardboard guests were a mere decoy went room to room through Mr. Varsano's lavish offices, searching for real, flesh-and-blood, non-cardboard guests in hiding. They were all set to issue multiple fines to the party attendees, but sadly came to the realisation that even in locked-down London, you can't fine cardboard cutouts. Yet... My flailing friend Boris may yet introduce it. He's tried everything else without success. Uh, Nevertheless, unpersuaded by the explanation, the Met evidently did not entirely rule out that the party guests were merely pretending to be cardboard cutouts and standing very still. So they sent back another two officers a few hours later in hopes of uh, catching the cardboard cutouts doing the Lambada or the Macarena. This is what lockdown has come to, a world where you get raided for partying with cardboard. The class warriors, meanwhile, will be heartened by the social dynamic of the story. As I mentioned, it was a man on the top deck of a passing bus who grasped to the Met. So a bus passenger pooped the party of a private jet tycoon. It could have been worse. In the Laurentian Mountains in Quebec, Mirabel police were alerted to an illegal party and sent the boys round to shut it down. 36 attendees were each fined $1,546. That's an expensive party. An hour and a half west in Gatineau, a 17-year-old boy was heading back to his home in Ottawa, Ontario, after ice fishing at his dad's ice fishing hut in Aylmer, Quebec. He nearly made it. He was one stoplight from the Ontario border when the Quebec police pounced and pulled him over. It was 12 minutes past eight o'clock, which is when the nightly curfew descends on La Belle Province. 12 minutes past curfew. 
because he had been driving slower than he'd realised due to the ice and snow and poor road conditions. A grown-up would have been on the hook for the full 1500 bucks, but as he is a minor, Les Flics find him only $561 for his 12-minute breach of curfew in poor road conditions. One more. In Ireland, in the 10 days from January 11th to January 20th, police find 800 persons who were caught more than five kilometres, three miles from their home. There are police checkpoints on the roads to stop you and determine whether you are, say, 6.2 kilometres from your home. All violators are fined. A decade ago, I wrote in After America how easy it is for any society to lose what I called the habits of liberty. In the past year, we have lost a lot of the habits of liberty. What better way to escape from a world of censorship, surveillance, and big government than by delving into a novel about, well, censorship, surveillance, and big government? Mark Stein's latest tale is as timely as ever. Tune into Stein Online nightly as Mark reads George Orwell's dystopic 1984. Tales for Our Time are available exclusively to members of the Mark Stein Club. Listen to the latest tale and all the previous ones by going to www.steinonline.com. The Mark Stein Club presents The Hundred Years Ago Show. Sticking it to the Mad Muller, a Mary Celeste in the Carolinas, and do you know what a robot is. It's January 1921. Your world news update, the messy aftermath of the Great War continues. The Allied victors of the Supreme War Council have given diplomatic recognition to the new Republic of Estonia and to the new Republic of Latvia. They have also adjusted the total reparations that Germany will have to pay under the Treaty of Versailles. Under the adjusted plan, Berlin would pay them 2 billion gold marks per annum for the first five years, 4 billion per annum from 1926 to 1930, and 6 billion every year from 1931 to 1963 for a total of 222 billion gold marks. On the other hand, the Allied Council has relinquished some of its financial claims against the former Austro-Hungarian Empire. The French Supreme Court has reversed the convictions of six soldiers charged with desertion in 1914. Their commanding officer now says he ordered the men to retreat. At trial, he had denied giving any such order. It is of small consolation to his men, they were executed six years ago. However, their widows will receive lifetime pensions of 2,000 francs a year, and their minor children will receive 1,000 francs.
The doctor's going to do all that he can, but what you're going to need is an undertaker man. Tell it to the followers of the Mad Muller, who now have a bad case of the crazy blues. For 20 years in Somaliland, Mohammed Abdullah Hassan has been famed as the Mad Muller. That is not a name the British or the Italians gave him, but the Somalis, Wadad Wal, the Muller who is a lunatic. Nevertheless, he and his dervishes have been a thorn in the side of the British, Italian and Ethiopian empires. London has had enough. They have bombarded the Mad Muller and his men by air and by massive land attack. Many of his key lieutenants have been killed or captured. The fate of the Mad Muller himself is not yet known. In the United States, for the last two years, the Russian-Soviet Government Bureau in Manhattan has functioned as an informal embassy of the Bolshevik regime, which is unrecognized by America. Following raids by New York police and legislative investigations for sedition, the State Department has now deported the would-be ambassador Ludwig Martens back to the Soviet Union. Five weeks before he leaves office, President Woodrow Wilson has announced that he will not commute the jail sentence of Socialist Party leader Eugene Debs, who is serving a 10-year sentence at the federal penitentiary in Atlanta for espionage. Mr Wilson's Attorney General, Mitchell Palmer, had recommended that Debs be released on Lincoln's birthday, February 10th. There was a race riot the other day in Warrenton, North Carolina, that left five whites and three black persons injured. Thirteen Negroes were arrested and held in the Warren County Jail. Now a lynch mob has broken into the jailhouse and spirited away two of the instigators of the riot, Alfred Williams and Plummer Bullock were taken a mile out of town into the woods and, quote, riddled with bullets. Another Negro, convicted murderer Henry Lowry, has been kidnapped while on a train taking him to the Texas State Penitentiary. A mob of 25 men in six high-powered automobiles waited at the railroad station in Sardis, Mississippi. When the train bearing Henry Lowry pulled in, the mob overpowered the two sheriff's deputies guarding him and then drove the murderer to Nodina, Arkansas. He was tortured and then chained to a log covered with brush and burned to death. It was a slow expiry. Lowry's torturers turned him over like a piece of meat and replenished the fire with oil. According to reports, quote, it was 40 minutes before the last death agony died away and the Negro's charred body lay still in death, unquote. Governor McRae calls this lynching the most disreputable act ever committed in Arkansas. A hit theatrical production in Prague has introduced a new word to the language. Carol Kapik's play is called R-U-R, which stands for Rosumovi Universalni Roboti, or Rossum's Universal Robots. What is a robot? Well, they appear to be human, but they're made in a factory and they do all the drudge work in our society, freeing human beings up to enjoy themselves, at least until the robots take over the world. There are both male robots and female robots, or robotesses. 
And the robotesses are kind of cute. For example, the manager of the company has a robotess secretary. But don't get too sweet on her. Ma! She's making eyes at me. Ma! She's awful nice to me. Ma! She's almost breaking my heart. I'm beside her. Mercy, let her conscience guide her. Ma! She wants to marry me. Be my honeybee. If I love her, I may lose her. Still, it's brutal to refuse her. Ma, she's kissing me. Ma, she's climbing on my knee. Ma, she's telling jokes to me. Ma, she's almost breaking my heart. Hurry, will ya? Ma, she's getting too familiar. Ma, make her stop teasing me. She won't let me be. Oh, what brand new words she's speaking. Hurry, Ma, before I weaken. Ma, she's kissing me. In Sweden, the ladies won't be making eyes. They'll be making X's. On ballot papers, Sweden has become the latest country to permit women the right to vote. Do you know what black light is or ultraviolet light? Dr. Robert Wood of Johns Hopkins University has given the first demonstration of a new lamp that uses filters to eliminate visible light while projecting ultraviolet light or black light. The lamp thus reveals chemicals that are not detectable in ordinary light. Dr. Wood calls his invention the chemical eye. In sports news, the New York Yankees baseball team has announced that it will no longer be sharing Manhattan's famous polo grounds with the New York Giants. Instead, they're moving to the Bronx and building a stadium of their own on land they bought from the Hebrew Orphan Asylum. Construction will begin in June. At a National Hockey League game in Montreal, the Ottawa Senators quit their match against the Canadians and walked off five minutes before the end. They were protesting a man they regarded as a very biased referee, Cooper Smeaton. With the Ottawa team gone, Mr Smeaton allowed the game to continue with the Montreal Canadiens facing an open goal, no goaltender, no defenders, and Newsy Lalonde and Amos Arbour each put the puck in the net as easily as anybody ever has in the history of the game. The NHL is likely to fine the Ottawa Senators for their rejection of the referee's authority.
Breeze, blow my baby back to me and my livestock and my trees and my farmhouse. The state of Washington has been struck by the great Olympic blowdown, the most powerful storm in the history of the state. The high winds swept from the Pacific Ocean across the Olympic Peninsula at up to 113 miles per hour and have wreaked havoc all the way to Walla Walla. Millions of trees have been toppled, including over 40% of those on the southwest slopes of the Olympic Mountains. Hundreds of farm animals have been killed by flying debris, but so far only Only two people have been killed. Destructive winds sweep on. The first aircraft to cross the Atlantic Ocean, R-34, has been destroyed by heavy winds shortly after its arrival at the Royal Naval Air Station at Howden in Yorkshire. The dirigible was one of Britain's most expensive aircraft, valued at £250,000. The U.S. freighter SS Hewitt left Port Arthur, Texas on January the 20th and then lost radio contact off the coast of Florida. All 42 of its crew are feared lost. The cargo schooner Carol A. Deering was last heard from when it tried to hail a lightship uh, and was then glimpsed a day later moving toward the Diamond Shoals in choppy waters. It has run aground off the coast of North Carolina But there is not a trace of its 10-man crew. The only living creature on board was the ship's mascot, a parrot. More transport disasters. On the Cambrian Railway in Wales, the northbound express from Aberystwyth to Shrewsbury was flying down the rails when it saw the local southbound train from Welshpool to Aberystwyth ahead, coming toward it on the single-line track. They hit at half past midday and 17 people are dead. Sometimes you don't need a train or a ship. Twelve guests of the Colonial Hotel in Hoboken, New Jersey. Six men and six women are dead and three others are seriously injured after a fire broke out. The fire started when another guest left his room with a lit cigar smouldering in an ashtray. The cigar set fire to the curtains and the flames spread. Frederick Parkhurst will go down as the shortest-serving governor of Maine. He was elected in September and took office just 26 days ago. He is dead of pneumonia at the age of 56. William T. Sedgwick has been hailed as the first true epidemiologist in the United States and the great reformer of public health services. Whatever his contributions to the health of Americans... Dr. Sedgwick saw nothing healthy in female emancipation and would not have approved of those Swedish ladies getting the vote. He regarded women's suffrage as an abomination that would lead to, quote, a degeneration and degradation of human fibre which would turn back the hands of time a thousand years. He is dead at 65. Alfred White, known to all as Brooklyn's first citizen, was also a reformer of low-income housing. He replaced filthy tenements with affordable, clean apartment buildings. He was out skating. The thin ice cracked. He fell through and drowned at the age of 74. 
Francis McEwen Belford met President Lincoln just the once in 1861, shortly after his election. She was a tireless activist for a coast-to-coast road across the United States. As she put it, what could be finer evidence of national loyalty than a wide, fair highway traced through the heart of the land, built, maintained, guarded, beautified by the people of the states traversed by it? Dead at 82, she will forever be remembered as the mother of the Lincoln Highway. And that's the way of the world, January 1921. A quick programming note, if you miss any of our weekly 100 Years Ago shows as they proceed through the month, You can now hear them as an Omnibus Sunday standalone, uh, starting this weekend, January 31st. Do join us. Mark's Mailbox is on the air. Eric Dale, an Iowa member of the Mark Stein Club, writes... Conservatives do need new ideas. Here are my suggestions. And all these are very interesting, Eric. I'll add my thoughts as we go along. Eric says, one, stop using Reagan as a crutch. Too many conservative commentators have an unhealthy dependence on Reagan nostalgia, which leads to trying to apply Reagan's solutions to the problems of his day to our own. This is why the reflex of most Republicans is to propose a new tax cut in almost any context. The fact of the matter is that our corporations don't even consider their current tax rates to be that much of an impediment as they almost all endorse politicians who would raise corporate tax rates. Reagan last ran for office in 1984, so no one under the age of 58 has ever voted for him. Is that right? I think your math might be a little off there, Eric. It's more like... uh well, 54, 55, isn't it? Uh, but the point the point stands. Eric continues, you should forgive our present day 18 year old voters for not being nostalgic for a politician who last ran 30 years before they were born. No argument there, Eric. Uh, until uh, Trump came along, the American right was running on Reagan nostalgia, which is basically telling the world you're running on fumes because it was the last good time. He was the last star. Uh, but it's really weird. I'm I'm just uh, trying to do the arithmetic here. But 30 years after he left office, the British Conservative Party wasn't running on Churchill nostalgia because they had Thatcher in Australia uh, they weren't running on Sir Bob Menzies' nostalgia because they're John Howard in Canada. The Liberals weren't running on Mackenzie King nostalgia because they're Pierre Trudeau. Uh, the Reagan cult is a consolation for losers. So why would you advertise that? When I made the mistake of getting mixed up with the CRTV cockwombles... <laughs> who lost so totally in court. I'll put the gloating aside. Uh, The guy told me uh, that Mark Levin had announced on his CRTV show that he was naming his studio the Ronald Reagan Studio and asked me if I wanted my studio to have a name. So I said, yeah, sure. Call it the Marquis of Salisbury Studio. All this does is advertise your weakness. Uh, Two, says Eric, 
Uh, we need renewed and updated antitrust litigation and legislation. Big tech shutting down Parler is the most egregious example, but they have been deplatforming and suppressing speech for years. Every major corporation has actively aligned itself with the Democratic Party and now seeks to impose influence far beyond the selling of their products and services. Media has consolidated into a handful of corporate behemoths. The bipartisan consensus at the Federal Trade Commission that mergers are always good has to end, and we need to actively start breaking up these oligopolies. Yes, indeed, break them up. Uh, I'm not sure that we need updated antitrust legislation. Enforcing the existing antitrust laws would be good enough, uh, at least as a start, because Google, say, has a far greater monopoly than Standard Oil did 110 years ago, and its product is more vital even than petroleum because it's the entirety of human knowledge. Or, or at any rate, access to the entirety of human knowledge across the planet. But we dithered. And so Google, Amazon, Facebook are basically like drug cartels in Colombia. They bought up all the politicians they need, and they can afford to buy a thousand times more. Uh, as I suggested on Rush yesterday, it would now need multinational action, not just the U.S., but the European Union and others, if you wanted to put a serious crimp in these guys. Dennis Prager playing footsie uh, and trying to sue them into liking him won't work. They have to be broken up. Three, says Eric, we need to get serious about uniform election integrity. There's no reason in the world that the ostensibly most powerful nation on earth shouldn't be able to conduct its elections transparently, efficiently and securely. In person, ID required voting with results known precisely within a couple of hours of the polls closing should be our standard. Uh, well... Uh, what you're talking, I hate to say this to any uh, loyal uh, red, white and blue American, but what, what you're talking sounds uh, awfully like a system closer to Canada's, which I'm in favour of. Uh, uh, in Canada, the provinces run provincial elections and the feds run federal elections to a uniform national standard. Uh, that's the same whether you're in downtown Toronto or on an ice floe eating whale blubber up in Nunavut. Um, if necessary, you could have two ballots on Tuesdays in November, one for federal office, one for state. Or you could move state elections to another day, say uh, town meeting day in March for those of us in New Hampshire. The national standards should include paper ballots, more polling stations, so no long lines in Democrat cities and going to judges to get a court order to keep the polls open. Uh, and there should also be a requirement that votes be counted where they're cast instead of being driven around in the middle of the night. Uh, waving the pocket constitution around on TV, as certain hosts do, won't get you anywhere because it doesn't matter if you have the world's best constitution, if you have the world's worst election operations system, because then uh, all that happens is that the worst election operations system uh, winds up uh, with the co the Constitution being uh, interpreted and divined by guys who loathe it. Uh, what I've just said 
obviously is irrelevant if Republicans meekly accept November the 3rd as the new permanent voting system, mass mail-in ballots, which is what Democrats want. If that's the system, the Democrats will never not win. And my sense these last few weeks is that the GOP doesn't have the stomach for that fight. Uh, Four... Final point from Eric. We need to decouple ourselves from China and we need to take a hard look at our trade agreements in general. Our elites more or less take the iPencil story. That was a famous, uh, oh, it's a video. You can find it on the uh, internet now unless Google's uh, managed to uh, get rid of that one. Uh, our elites more or less take the iPencil story as the beginning and end of real thought toward trade and assume that economic efficiency is the sole criterion in trade. The reality is, and it's infuriating how often we need to be reminded of this, that trade that disproportionately enriches a geostrategic rival like China or places a dangerous bottleneck in the supply chain of critical supplies like, say, medicines in hostile nations or vulnerable countries is a crisis waiting to happen. We need to prioritise... And if necessary, subsidize redundancies and manufacturing capabilities of these things here at home. Indeed, Eric, the only bit of 2020 worth a damn was that brief moment in the spring when for once we were talking about something that mattered, how Beijing had snaffled the world out from under us and how to get it back. If we don't decouple from China, we're done. We're done, totally done. Um, In other times, China would have been no threat because it's a resource-poor nation. So the geniuses of the Washington Uniparty gave them the entirety of American manufacturing and enriched them to such a degree that China has now bought up all the resources around the globe they'll ever need. If they do take Taiwan and America honors its treaty obligations, how do you think that war's going to go? Uh, Within three weeks, uh, the supply chain on the home front will be kaput. You name it, underwear, USB sticks, aspirin, because we gave China everything. So it won't be like, uh, you know, uh, another two decades of Afghan-like dithering, because after a month, there'll be serious civil unrest on the home front, and MS-13 gangs will be running the black market in every American suburb. Trump... uh, was, is, a deeply flawed man, but compared to the Uniparty wankers, he was the only guy willing to force the issue on the central question of our age. All excellent points, Eric, and perhaps others will want to weigh in, maybe even on Friday's Clubland Q&A. Mark Stein's Last Call. As you know, we memorialize the dead of CHICOM 19 because we don't think the Chinese Politburo has the right to kill millions of people who would otherwise have died of something else, whether three weeks later or three decades later. Among the toll of the Chinese coronavirus is the man who made CNN, Larry King. Cable news was different back then. Tonight, Steve Allen, once called television's man for all seasons, is dead at age 78. We'll share memories of this multi-talented talk show pioneer with friends and fans. 
Joining us from Las Vegas, entertainer Steve Lawrence, who knew Steve Allen for 47 years. In Los Angeles, television personality Ed McMahon, with him as Carl Reiner, who received the Kennedy Center's Mark Twain Prize for American Humor earlier this month. In West Palm Beach, former talk show host Mike Douglas. And then, with just a week to go to Election Day 2000, we'll talk to the Democratic Vice Presidential Candidate, Senator Joseph Lieberman of Connecticut. It's all next on Larry King Live. Now there's a man with a sense of priorities. The vice presidential candidate takes second billing to Steve Lawrence and Ed McMahon. I miss those kinds of shows. For the full hour, Tina Louise. You want politics? Here's Larry King with a man pondering a presidential run. Now let's touch a lot of bases. Uh, the first thing you keep, we keep hearing is you're going to announce in January, right? Or make some sort of decision by January. Well, I'm going to announce whether or not I decide to run or whatever. And I what are you doing I haven't made now? that. I mean, all that's happening now is people are coming out with polls, but the polls have been unbelievable. So I am going to form a presidential exploratory committee. I might as well announce that on your show. Everyone else does. Well, that's pretty close. Most people who form exploratory committees, that's that major step toward going. Well, it's a can step. Can you say it's I, a major step? I don't think I can say it's a major step. I'm looking at it very seriously. I have a lot to lose, Larry. I mean, I'm the biggest developer in New York by far. I'm doing more, as you know, from being here a lot. I mean, I'm doing more than any. I'm building 90-story buildings all over the place. And we're just doing a lot. And we're doing great. I mean, the city's the hottest city, and I'm the biggest developer in the hottest city in the world right now. Other guys, you know, they run. Pat Buchanan, what is he, you know, he's not giving up anything. What's he doing? And politicians, when they run, they run from one office to another. It's the same thing. They, you know, answer different calls. I'm giving up a lot if I decide to run. So we're going to look at it. We're going to explore it. We're doing the committee, and uh, we'll see how it comes and out. And the committee's going to look into all areas, talk to people, all financing. Areas, but really, really, the big thing they're going to look at is, is can you win? Exploratory committees, 16 years later, Donald Trump didn't waste his time with any of that rubbish. Dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 87, talk show supremo for decades, Larry King. Speaking of kings, King Victor Tulare III had to go to court against his uncle Sekukuni III and sue his way onto the throne of the Bapedi kingdom. But South Africa's constitutional court ruled in his favour and Victor Tulare became king last July. Last month, the constitutional court formally recognising the Bapedi kingship in the person of King uh, Tulare, Victor Tulare III. We're joined now on Skype by the brother of the king, Prince Patudi Tulare, who is a senior counsel for the Bapedi royal house. Let's welcome you once again. Uh, does this imply consensus amongst the Babedi people that this indeed is their king? Uh, the kingdom of Babedi nation uh, is a very great kingdom. Territorially, uh, the kingdom stretches from the Limpopo River to the Val River. I mean, historically. Uh, that is something uh, uh, everyone knows about. This is a very big uh, kingdom uh, with a massive uh, population. The new monarch did not live to see his coronation. Dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 40, the king of the Bapedi, Victor Tulare III.
James Cross was born in Ireland and went a long way from Tipperary. He had a good war with the Royal Engineers and then saw service all over the Commonwealth, New Delhi, Winnipeg, Kuala Lumpur, before finding himself in Montreal in 1968 as the United Kingdom's Senior Trade Commissioner. Not the most demanding posting, one would have thought, but on October the 5th, 1970, members of the Front de Libération du Québec, the Quebec Liberation Front, seized him at his home on Redpath Crescent in the Golden Square Mile and held him hostage. Five days later, Pierre Laporte, the Deputy Premier of Quebec, was also kidnapped by the FLQ and was found dead in the trunk of a car at Longueuil Airport a week later. Mr Cross was expected to meet the same fate. Instead, they held him for two months before agreeing to release him in return for a flight to Cuba. When it was all over... He recounted his experience with somewhat British understatement. Well, thank you very much, gentlemen. I don't want to say very much. I'm still rather tired. But what I first would like to say is what a wonderful sense of relief it is to be back in the normal world after eight weeks of close captivity. And I think the one thing that this dreadful period has given me is a sense of the importance of the ordinary, simple things of life which most people take for granted. After ten minutes of that, the news guys uh, wanted something a bit more vivid, a bit more colour. Can you tell us when you knew that the kidnappers' hideout had been discovered and what transpired at this point? Nothing much happened for about the next four hours. Then the power was cut at, I think, around two in the morning. I was in bed at the time. They got me up. Um, they handcuffed, they took me into a corridor in the middle of the house. They handcuffed me to a doorknob. So I spent the night in a very uncomfortable position with my hand up like that. One question, how would you describe your kidnappers, Mr. Cross? What type of people were they? It's awfully difficult for me to, to, to say I, I would, would really like to think about this. They were obviously convinced and, 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 and fervent revolutionaries. Did you have continuing discussions with them? I had a certain amount of political discussion with them in the first two weeks. But I'm afraid that after the death of Pierre Laporte, I didn't feel like discussing too much with him. Mr. Cross remained with Her Majesty's civil service, but he never again served outside the UK. A much-travelled man was now wary of abroad. He survived the Front de Libération du Québec, but not the Chicom 19. Dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 99, Trade Commissioner and Hostage, James Cross. Against the great toll of the Wu flu, we have the inspiring story from Spain of Brocelia Blanco. Her family was informed that she had died of the COVID on January 13th and that she'd been buried on January 14th. No funeral, because like birthday parties, they're illegal now. 
Uh, ten days later, back at the old folks' home in Jovet, where they lived, her widower was sitting, weeping, still mourning the death of his wife when Brocelia Blanco walked in through the door and had no idea why her husband was so upset. It turned out that it had been her roommate at the specialised corona facility who had kicked the bucket and there'd been a bit of a clerical error. So she's now going to court uh, to get the judge to declare her back from the grave. If that corrupt slug in America, John Brennan, uh, needs any ideas, isn't Chicom 19 the perfect cover for disappearing your enemies? Oh, Peter Navarro came down with a bad case of the COVID just before he was due to present his election fraud findings. Oh, dear, I'm sorry to hear that. Where is he? Can I see him? Oh, sorry, no. Containment protocols and all that. Oh, medical update. He's died and been buried. Oh, wait a minute. Don't I have to identify the body? No, no, no. We've done away with all that. It's the COVID, you know. That will do it for today's show. See you back here in a few hours for the latest episode of George Orwell's 1984. Uh, just ahead of that, Laura Rosen-Cohen with this week's Laura's Links. And just after uh, 1984, I'll be with Tucker on the telly. Australia Day has come and gone. I played this on our Australia Day special three years ago, and a lot of people said they rather liked it. This is Banjo Patterson's great Australian song about travelling on foot, that's waltzing, with your belongings in a swag bag, a Matilda, hence waltzing Matilda, but all that's completely incomprehensible to non-Australians, so you might as well sing it in a foreign language. Here, Yves Montand turns it into a song about waltzing a girl called Matilda. I knew many years ago a lovely girl called Mathilde from the French Alps, now no longer with us, but this always reminds me of her. Stay safe, stay free. Monsieur Montand. Le vent du passé me murmure un conte passé, éveillant mes amours fanés, valse du souvenir. Mélodie des désirs oubliés Quand vous dansiez Mathilda Pour moi Valsez Mathilda Valsez Mathilda Charmant fantôme De mes jours Tourbillon parfumé En valsant vous étiez si joli Quand vous dansiez Mathilda pour moi Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. Si joli vous étiez, hélas, jamais plus ne me reviendrez. Quand vous dansiez, Mathilda, 
rights reserved. <laughs>